The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, Lloyd, today we are going to be talking about cyber privacy. And I've just been reading this book called Cyber Privacy, Who Has Your Data and Why You Should Care? And this is by April Falcon Doss. We are so thrilled to have her coming to us from the East Coast in Baltimore. Let me tell you about this amazing woman. April Falcon Doss is a partner at Saul Ewing um, Arnstein and Lear, where she is, she's an attorney, where she chairs the firm's cybersecurity and privacy practice, and she co-chairs its congressional investigation group. You know, she's right by D.C. From 2017 to 2018, she served as the senior minority counsel for the Russia investigation in the United States Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. Oh, remember what that was all about. Before that, April spent over a decade at the National Security Agency, that's the NSA, where she managed counterterrorism programs and new technology development. She was posted overseas as a foreign liaison officer and served as the Associate General Counsel for Intelligence Law. Prior to her federal government services, uh, April worked as a public defender, a civil litigator, and in-house counsel. She received her law degree from the University of California, yay, at Berkeley, her undergraduate degree from Yale, and she has an MFA in creative writing from Goucher College. You can find out more about her at our website at privacypiracy.org, but also at Saul, S-A-U-L, dot com, which is her law, the law firm that she is a partner at. So thank you so much for joining us this morning, April. Mari, it is such a pleasure. Thank you for having me on the show. Well, that, you know, I, you have such an interesting background. It, it, this must have been a very, very exciting time when you were the senior minority counsel for the Russia investigation. Tell us a little bit about that. That'll just, that's fascinating. Sure, sure. It was, um, well, you know, I started there in uh, 2017. It was actually uh, before uh, FBI Director Jim Comey had been fired and before um, the uh, Department of Justice appointed Bob Mueller to be the special counsel. And so at that time, there were two investigations really trying to examine what had 
happened during the 2016 election, what specifically the Russian government had done to try to interfere with the U.S. elections. There was one in the U.S. Congress in the House, in the House uh, Permanent Select Intelligence Committee, and one on the Senate side, in the Senate Intelligence Committee. And um, although this was, you know, early 2017, um, already the House Committee investigation had really started to suffer from uh, just partisan divisions. Um, Mm. it, It was really struggling to sort of stay on track in a bipartisan way. And one of the things that was um, such a pleasure about working on the Senate Intelligence Committee's investigation was that um, both the chair and the vice chair of that committee, um, Richard Burr and Mark Warner, um, really were very committed to, to trying to maintain the bipartisan nature of the work throughout the course of what was naturally going to be a politically fraught um, investigation, but one that was so important to carry out in order to understand what this longtime adversarial government um, had tried to do to interfere in the U.S. election process. So it was it was such a privilege to get to be a part of that. And um, for, for folks who might be listening and might not be aware, the um, Senate Intelligence Committee did put out um, a five-volume report that detailed everything from social media influence operations to um, the internet research hacking, uh, excuse me, the internet research agency social media posts and to the GRU and SVR, Russian intelligence agency, hacking of the DNC. I mean, there's just a wealth of information out there. Um, And again, it was really, um, it was uh, such a privilege to be a part of and, and, as somebody who, um, as you know, as somebody who just cares deeply about the the civic fabric of our nation, it was really so gratifying to see that investigation carry forward in a bipartisan way throughout. So, if anybody wants to read it, it's all available. It's about uh, about a thousand pages worth of report. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, I um, think that probably really helped them in this last election to mm-hmm. to really hopefully prevent more of that kind of stuff. Because I do, right? Don't you think that happened? It sure did. There were a lot of lessons learned that I think carry carried forward, and and certainly we did see in the twenty twenty election cycle. We saw um, attempts, particularly social media um, attempts by uh, Russia, by China, by uh, Iran, to really try to manipulate public opinion and, and shape the political discourse. But this time, having learned a great deal from 2016, we saw social media platforms um, identify those networks of what are usually referred to as inauthentic accounts right. um, or fake accounts, the trolls, the bots. Um, we saw them identify those networks much earlier on, take action to take them down so that, um, so that there would be less of that, less of the risk that those external networks were going to shape the, the, either the tone of our domestic politics or the outcome of it. Um, interestingly, of course, we learned in mid-December that there had been a very significant Russia, Russian cyber intrusion um, that affected a number of U.S. government agencies, um, the Department of State, Department of Homeland Security, uh, Department of Commerce, and others. So the, the cybersecurity um, 
space is still very much a, a contested field for intelligence operations and and um, right. And, I mean, you don't you don't need to have spies in person when you can do all these kinds of um, you know infiltrations right online. You know that. that that's right. And now the, the good news was that, um, you know, it was absolutely clear, uh, you know, at least from every indication that we've seen through the election cycle and, you know, since the election concluded in November, um, there's no indication that there was any compromise of election systems, right? Yeah. You have um, the former head of cybersecurity at DHS, Chris Krebs, um, you know, who's, who's now testified in Congress reiterating what he had been saying publicly throughout the process, which is this has been the most secure election history. Yeah. Um, and so there absolutely were a number of lessons learned um, from 2016 to 2020. And, and I think that these are going to continue to be challenges because to your point, as foreign governments see that they have the opportunity to really project a lot of uh, influence, power, force, if you will, without having to resort to military force or be physically present, um, that asymmetric uh, leverage, if you will, that's made possible by cyber intrusions and cyber attacks is is going to continue to be a really hotly contested space in geopolitics for, you know, years to come, I think. Exactly. But I really think the work that you did must have really, really helped. So I honor you for that, too, because you Uh, sure did, you know, must have taught them a lot in those thousand pages of you and your team, (laughs) what you came up with and how you saw what they're doing, because that surely helped in this election. Now, I want to ask you about the NSA, too. That You spent like a decade there, over a decade. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Now, how is it that you got into that? Well, you know, that's such a great question. So, so you mentioned um, at the beginning of the show that I had gone to UC Berkeley, which I loved, by the way. Fabulous school. The UC system is, is I, I am a, a proud and grateful alum of the UC system. Well, you're, um, you're speaking on, uh, you know, KUCI, <laughs> which is part of the University of California, right. Irvine. So, yes, yeah, so you're coming home to, to, to your am. alma mater. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Absolutely. And, um, yeah, so I, you know, I graduated from, from Cal in the early 90s. And, you know, at that time, um, there weren't courses on, you know, cybersecurity law or right. privacy, data privacy. Um, when people talked about technology law, they tended to think about things like intellectual property, like patents and trademark and things like that, um, which, of course, are still parts of technology law. But, but things like cybersecurity and privacy weren't, weren't really on people's radar screens in the same kind of way. And, so I, you know, graduated from law school, did did a number of things, and and then um, by the time uh, 2011 came around, excuse me, 2001 came around, I had moved back to the East Coast where my family was living, and um, and like so many people in this country, I remember exactly what I was doing when the terrorist attacks of 9-11 happened. Right. I remember, you know, seeing the, the you know, news footage of the Twin Towers and uh, the Pentagon. And so at that time, I was living in central Maryland, um, not far outside of Baltimore. And I thought, you know, 
if I can do something to be of service to our country, that's an honorable thing to do. And um, so because of where I was living, the idea of going to work at the National Security Agency was, was a very natural next thought. Um, so not long after 9-11, I, I um, applied to work at the NSA and, and went through the security clearance process and, um, as you said, stayed there for over a decade. I, I started there. Um, by the time I arrived there, it was 2003, and I stayed there until 2016. And um, it was a wonderful career. Um, got to do a lot of really interesting things. Um, but among other things, I happened to be working at the NSA during a time when um, consumer technologies and data privacy and cybersecurity issues were really undergoing a wholesale transformation. So when I started at the agency, you know, cybersecurity wasn't even really a word that people talked about very much. You know, old-time computer folks talked about information assurance and, um, and, and ideas like cybersecurity were um, mostly focused in fairly niche fields, and nobody was thinking about consumer data privacy or individual privacy as something to really be um, reckoned with on a day-to-day basis. Right. Of course, if you think about what's happened in the last 20 years, right, um, by uh, 2004, Facebook had been founded. By 2007, the first smartphone rolled out with the release of the first iPhone. And now here we find ourselves in a world in which, um, you know, we all, we have our smartphones, you know, kind of permanently affixed to us. I mean, I I carry mine in my pocket at pretty much all times. We have real-time geolocation of all of our activities. We're all on social media. We're using apps. We're using platforms of all kinds. And um, all of those are gathering data about us. And they're they're giving us lots of opportunity to do new things in our lives, to learn things, to connect with people, to have new kinds of entertainment. There's, There's a lot of good that comes out of all that data-intensive or data-driven technology. Especially during, you know, especially during the pandemic, we can connect in so many ways with our smartphones and our computers. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, we've got the the bright side and the dark side. (laughs) Well, and that's exactly right. And so, you know, by 2015 or so, as I was thinking, you know, I had been in government for quite some time and as I said, I was really sort of, you know, immersed in issues relating to cloud computing and algorithms and, um, you know, how telecommunications work and just all kinds of technology issues. Um, by 2015 or 2016, as I was thinking about uh, leaving government to come into the private sector, um, I realized that what had been sort of a niche issue now affected everything. 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 That's right. And so I thought, well, you know, if I can bring some of this, some of what I've learned over the years about data privacy um, to into a you know, sort of mainstream conversation, not just sort of government context, right. um, you know, let me do that. And so, so that's how I came to, as you said, be a practicing privacy lawyer. That's what I do, cybersecurity and privacy law all day, every day. And and in the course of doing that, um, I thought, you know, 
I mean, so Mari, you know, folks like you and I, we get the the opportunity, in some respects, the luxury of immersing ourselves in these issues. We get to kind of live and breathe it, you know. Mm-hmm. But I thought, well, you shouldn't have to be an expert in order to understand what data is being created about you and how, exactly. who's collecting it, how it gets used, um, and what kinds of steps you might want to take if you're not comfortable with those things. So that was the genesis of this of this book, was the opportunity to try to pull together in one place sort of a, a simple overview or primer for people that who, who don't live and breathe this stuff, whose interests and everyday activities lie elsewhere, to just say, you know what, who has your data, here's why you might care, here it is all kind of wrapped up with a bow and a single place to get a whole lot of information. Yeah, no, it's wonderful. And so I'm going to just give the name of your book again so we know what we're talking about. It's called Cyber Privacy, Who Has Your Data and Why You Should Care. This is, we're speaking right now with April Falcon Doss, and I love the uh, the fingerprint with the lock on it. That's great. And one of, one of the fingerprints has a lock open, which is a little bit scary. I know, right? <laughs> But yeah, and and so I think people, you know, when I got into this, it's because a woman stole my identity, and that's when I went Mm. to Congress, and I, I testified on 18 U.S.C. 1028, and testified in in California and, you know, ended up writing my books to help others too. So I get it. I get it. And you were so right when you just said it affects everything. So, you know, being an expert is okay, but everybody needs to know because it's about everything. So this book is so important that people get a hold of, read, and have practical ways of, you know, knowing about really who has your data, why you should care, what you should do. So, yeah, I'm, yeah. I just love that you did this. It's, it's, oh, thank yeah, you. It's so important. And every time I see a book like this, I go, oh, my gosh, you know, my audience really needs to do, to know about this and how to do it. So yeah. that, that that's amazing. And we will continue to talk about it. And of course, it's on our website as well. So even though we are part of this hyper-connected and over-connected world, is, is there any way for us <sighs> to believe that we can expect any amount of privacy? Oh, that's such a great question. I think it's a essential for us to be able to expect a decent amount of privacy. And, um, and, and of course, as you know, California has been in the forefront of this kind of issue for a number of years now. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, for, for all of your listeners who are there in the Irvine and greater California area, of course, the California Consumer Privacy Act and the recent California Privacy Rights Amendment are all designed to help create some of that control. And, and I think that we'll continue to see other states look to California's example. And I think we, we're seeing increasing momentum for a federal privacy law that could address some of these issues. Um, you know, as a practical matter, can we still have privacy? We can. It takes a little bit more effort today to, you know, be aware of 
everything from app settings to device control to cross-platform data aggregation. But we can take steps to um, exert some control of our individual privacy. Um, and, I, and I think it's heartening to see that, um, that at the legislative level, whether it's in California or you know, around the world, that we're seeing so much increased attention to this because we have to be able to expect to live in a connected world without giving up all control over the information about us. Yeah, it worries me because I'm going to be buying a new refrigerator and <laughs> and I'm thinking, right. of, do I want one of these refrigerators that's going to, you know, know everything that I'm eating and tell me and be online and remind me that I need milk or whatever it is and, and that they're watching what I eat? You know, it's like, oh my gosh, what, you know, well, what happens with, I mean, how do we, do we just disregard it? Do we get excited about it? What do we do about this, April? Well, you know, it's a, it's such a great question. And when you think about it, it's so funny. I mean, a generation ago, nobody would have had to question whether their refrigerator was going to spy on them, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and and in fact, one of the one of the things that I write about in the book are smart toilets right. that can that can analyze analyze <laughs> your poo to find out, you know, what your medical health and conditions are. Right. So. Um, so what do we do? Well, I think it's a practical matter. The first thing we do is, is, is just um, become informed enough of the issues that we care about. And so the way that, that my book is organized, it, um, the very first section of it really just provides an overview of some of the major types of personal information that get collected. So that includes things like our real-time location information that is getting collected by our phones and, and by a number of you know, other kinds of devices and applications. Um, it includes things like information about biometrics, whether that's fingerprints or DNA, it, it, uh, facial recognition. Um, voice, and gait, yeah. It's, voice and gait recognition. Um, it's now possible to clearly identify people from the way they walk. That's oh. something that wouldn't have been possible previously. Mm. Um, it talks about algorithms and uh, um, the ways that those are used to predict people's behavior um, based on information about them. It talks about um, social media data. So there's a whole section that just sort of walks through. Here's the major categories of personal information right. that are being created and collected about us on a daily basis. And then there's three main um, middle sections of the book that look at the, these issues from different lenses. So depending on what people are most concerned about, there is a whole section that looks at um, the sort of data-intensive, data-driven technology sector. That's all the big data platforms. It's Apple and Google and Facebook and Amazon. The ways that consumer data is used, the, the sort of in that advertising-driven model of monetizing personal data. Mm-hmm. And... And that's an area that many people are concerned about. So there's a whole section on that. Then there's a a second section that's all about the ways that personal data gets used to reinforce um, existing differences in power relationships. So whether that's the relationship between a workplace and its employees or between a school or a school system and its students or between, you know... 
jealous ex-spouses and their their former partner, the ways in which stalkerware and revenge porn and um, and deep fakes are getting are making use of people's data to enable online harassment. Mm. So there's workplace surveillance and school surveillance and personal surveillance. And then there's a whole section that talks about government surveillance. Um, for some people, the biggest area that they are concerned about is what are law enforcement doing with personal data? What's being done with respect to border searches of devices and social media? What's being done by the national security community, like the agency that I used to work for? Um, so there's a whole section that talks about uh, the use of data at the government level for national security law enforcement. And also there's some discussion about the way that is addressed in other countries, um, the different approaches in Europe and Russia and China to these issues. And then the, the last section of the book really talks about what are some of, what are some of the solutions that we might be able to find um, as a society, some of the ways that we can um, deal, deal with all these things, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, technology develops so much more quickly than law and policy can keep pace. And, um, and again, I'm 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 not anti-technology. There, no, there no, we so love many... it. We just know, yeah, we have to be able to use that technology, and it's it's all about you know building privacy into the architecture of it, and and also being aware of it, and and demanding it, and dealing with it. Yeah. But we are out of time. Will you believe that we could talk for? Ever. But I'm so glad you gave the overview of your wonderful new book. So um, I want you to tell us um, where, let's see, I want to, say, want to say the name again, Cyber Privacy, Who Has Your Data and Why You Should Care by April Falcon Doss. And I want you to give your website as well so people can go and find out more about you. Absolutely. It's April F. Doss. Com. And Mari, thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure. Uh, it is. And we will have you back again, okay? That sounds great. Okay. Thank you so much. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. and visit our website at privacypiracy.org. Thanks. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. Hi, I'm Mari Frank host of Fighting for Love, which airs every Monday morning at 8.30 a.m. right here on KUCI, 88.9 FM Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. I'm pleased to present the weekly segment of Orange County Sheriff News and Safety Tips. And if you have seen a person who is engaged in some suspicious activity, here's some things you want to do to help law enforcement, to help you to protect others. First thing, take out a piece of paper or your cell phone. And if you have a recorder on your cell phone, be prepared to provide the physical description of, of the subject and include the following. Write down the gender, the race, the height, the weight, the hair color, 
the hairstyle clothing and any unique physical features that you see notate the method of transportation such as the vehicle the make of the vehicle the model the color and if you can even take a picture of the plate number that'll help you to remember and finally take note of the time and place you last saw that suspicious person and the last direction in which that person was traveling either by foot or in a car or in some other mode of transportation like a bicycle you can help the sheriff's department to help prevent crime so we thank you and you can learn more at OCSD.org, which is the Orange County Sheriff's Department. <laughs> <laughs>